Welcome to Critical Value, the podcast from the Urban Institute that explores issues of significance for research, policy, and people. I'm your host, Justin Milner. Take a minute to think about where you live. Think about the many neighborhoods and how they look different and might offer various access or resources like supermarkets, parks, community centers, or not. Healthy communities depend in part on a steady stream of investment and public resources to thrive, but sometimes these investments are distributed unequally across neighborhoods with different racial and income demographics. Historically, that's definitely been the case, and these unequal investments have led to disparities in health and educational and economic outcomes in low-income neighborhoods and communities of color. The worst part, residents of such communities are often blamed for these disparities. This kind of structural racism perpetuates a long-standing legacy of problematic community development. Here's Lottie Aaron, a senior fellow in the Health Policy Center at Urban. So many different studies of how systems here in the United States work. Certainly this applies to the community development field, but to many other areas as well. They're typically concluding that often the way these systems work right now, they are increasing and potentially accelerating inequality, especially inequality by race and ethnicity, but also by income, by advantaged versus disadvantaged groups. The way we've been doing community development and continue to do it has often been unfair. What if there were a better way, a way to reimagine and redesign the systems that led to these inequities? Lottie says that if we really want to change how systems operate, Systems change needs to be a piece of how we promote population health, well-being, and equity. If the need is to change these systems, these investments should be working towards some kind of permanent imprint on the system, such that when this one-time investment is done and goes away, hopefully it's functioning in a way that's promoting more equity, more fairness, and advancing the needs and interests of the people and the places that are most impacted and are ostensibly the target of the investment. On today's show, we're going to go deep on a really promising example of community development that takes this charge to improve equity and advance the interests of people and communities to heart. The initiative is called the Healthy Neighborhoods Equity Fund, or HNEF for short. The fund aims to invest in communities, not just to improve economic returns, but also improve lives. The impetus for the fund was to, yes, prioritize new investments that are often not available to all communities, but also to advance a community's vision for the future and bring lasting measurable health benefits as well. So our goal was not to just reproduce what's already happening, but to offer a different kind of investment opportunity that does explicitly seek to both solve that financing gap, but also do so in a very intentional and thoughtful way around environmental and community and health impact. That's Maggie Superchurch. She's the vice president of Healthy and Resilient Communities at the Conservation Law Foundation. The focus of the fund has been nine different communities around Boston. Boston is no different than the rest of the country. In health, wealth, and opportunity by neighborhood, those differences are rooted in historic patterns of racial segregation, discrimination and lending, disproportionate environmental burden, exclusion from systems that allow people to accumulate wealth and pass it along intergenerationally. And those effects were in place and have persisted over time in these communities. And so 
if we're really trying to be thoughtful about how to change the systems that produced that outcome, we have to be thoughtful about intervening in those systems over the long term as well. And finance and investment is a key part, though not the only part of that system. And Maggie says this is a new approach. We are trying to do development differently to create health in place. That's really an acknowledgement that health and the creation of health is not something that happens overnight. It's not an app. It's not a single intervention. It's really all the things that shape our daily lived experience, how we move around, what kind of access we have to jobs, whether we have social support, how secure we feel, and all the things that collectively make up our neighborhoods and our homes. One of the things Maggie explored in the early days of creating the Healthy Neighborhoods Equity Fund was why across the Boston region, development was not being done equitably. Now, what does that mean? It means development was not happening in a way that made affluent places more accessible or in heavily disinvested areas that needed a boost. And in the places where development was happening, it was being done in a way that didn't provide any benefit to the original residents. And what we understood was that there are both regulatory and legislative barriers, often exclusionary zoning. And the other part being a private equity capital to the extent that it was historically available was only available in a limited number of locations where either the market was already very strong and returns are quite high from a financial perspective, or where there was a rapidly gentrifying neighborhood and an opportunity to make money very quickly in ways that might not be to the benefit of people in that community and often aren't. Maggie was looking for ways to make sure that the fund's investments distributed benefits equitably. One of the things that we thought a lot about as we were designing the fund was how to build in focus on impact really tied to the investment itself. We want to create a way to screen each investment we consider for impact with respect to not only the features and amenities of the development, but also the perspective of people in that place. And so one of our threshold considerations for the fund is what evidence is there that the people in that community have affirmatively said, we are seeking new development of this kind in this place And does this development conform to that vision and that idea, broadly speaking? And she was looking for developers that proactively wanted to work with the community and evolve their thinking in response to what they heard. And development that doesn't do that simply can't proceed because the way we've set up our investment fund is that the impact screening and the financial underwriting go hand in hand. And any proposed investment has to meet both tests before it even goes to committee for discussion and a decision. Think about that. Investment teams think about both financial returns and impact. This is a different approach to community development that upends the traditional investment paradigm. And we're going to come back to just what that looks like in a minute. But talk can be a little, as they say, inexpensive. Just because the fund said they were trying to better their impact on people does not mean it would happen. The road to that place is laid with best intentions, et cetera, et cetera. So to that end, the team began planning an evaluation study called the Healthy Neighborhood Study. I think the big tagline goal reason for existence for the Healthy Neighborhood Study is to uncover what matters for health in the way that we invest in and build neighborhoods from the perspective of the people who are already living there. That's Vedette Gavin. She serves as the co-principal investigator for the Healthy Neighborhood Study in Boston and is a senior research consultant at the Conservation Law Foundation. We know a lot about the factors of a neighborhood that support health and well-being, the attributes, the designs, the amenities. So green space, 
clean air, safe housing, all of those things, access to healthy, affordable food. There's been a lot of research around that and we can name those factors. But acknowledging that many places have been designed and disinvested in so that they don't have those opportunities and amenities today, there is a scarcity of research on how you then develop those amenities into communities where people have already been living in ways that will ensure that they can still stay there to enjoy them once they are built. In the early days when Maggie and Vedette were just putting the Healthy Neighborhood Study together, they were trying to understand the health system in a community by looking at what's already known in the public health literature. Here's Maggie. There was a lot that was known and documented about the connection between individual aspects of a neighborhood, whether it was housing or food or green space or transportation and health and well-being. But how all those features added up together, particularly for people who were in those places to begin with, was not really known. In order to understand what impact the equity fund's development investments were having on residents' health and well-being, Maggie and Vedette needed to develop a new model for researching health in the context of neighborhood change. A lot of the research would say, okay, we look at the health of this zip code. Then we look at the new amenities being built in this zip code. We look five years prior, five years later, the diabetes rate is down. The life expectancy is longer. The people are wider. What's the data to show who the people are who live in this place now? And whether the improvements in health that we're seeing from the way we are investing in developing these amenities are because the health of the people who are already living there is actually improving versus new people who are healthier are moving in or people who are unhealthier are being pushed out because we know the social determinants of health. So what was the big opportunity here? The big research opportunity was to move from what to build to how to build it such that we ensured the benefit is for the people who have been living in that place, calling it home, making it a place where families can live and survive and thrive for decades. How do we make sure that the things that we build support their improved health and well-being? And what are the things that they would look at to call better? Fidette and Maggie realized it would be more equitable to have people in the communities they were studying define what information they collected so it would be useful not just to the fund, but also to the residents. They wanted their healthy neighborhood study to be equitable too. But how did they do this? Well, they adapted their evaluation study into something much bigger, a participatory action research, or PAR for short. The PAR approach includes the input, participation, and reflections of the people and communities at the heart of the issues. Basically, it makes sure that community representatives are full partners in the research. And what that means is that the study uses, trains, pays, and mobilizes resident researchers to conduct a longitudinal study on the connections between environmental conditions, urban development, neighborhood change, and health outcomes. Basically, if you turned it into a bumper sticker, it might read, research by the people, for the people. The people who are living through an experience, who are in the middle of that phenomena, can best characterize it. We want to learn a lot about how and what matters. So let's find community partners who have been doing this work already and say, what are the questions that have mattered most to you to answer? What are the things that you have hypotheses about that you need to learn about? 
What are the experiences and understandings that you have from doing this work on the ground that you need to translate into data? And this approach helps to center equity in a meaningful way. A piece of advancing equity on the basis of race and economics is to take those groups racially and economically who have been excluded from the process of knowledge production and center their expertise in the research, center their questions and their expertise and lend all of our resources to lifting up that knowledge and that information and communicating it with the very systems that are impacting their lives. So that's the power building piece around achieving racial equity. Lottie Aaron from Urban agrees. Participatory action research is incredibly important and incredibly valuable for this kind of work, partly because, you know, the research enterprise itself is a system. So often these studies have not really included at all in any shape or form the people or places that are the subject of the research, actually putting them at the head of the table to really start to understand from their expertise as people living in these communities and witnessing day in and day out ways that their realities are aspects that are working well and other aspects that may not be working so well. And for this study, Robin Gibson is at the head of the table. Robin is a resident researcher for the Healthy Neighborhoods study based in Mattapan. Robin, can you tell us a little about Mattapan? Mattapan is a neighborhood in Boston. So it's in between, if you know other neighborhoods, Dorchester and Hyde Park. It's a really great community. I love the fact that there's so much culture. There's a lot of people who are Caribbean, West Indian. It's a very vibrant community and also one that definitely could use more investment and resources. For the past four years, Robin has been closely involved in survey design, data collection and analysis, and community-led actions related to the study's findings. As a resident researcher, you're really the person that has an understanding of the context of like the numbers and the information. You work with the whole team to come up with the survey questions, but then you're ultimately on out in the field. You're really talking to your neighbors. You're having them fill out the survey, but you're also talking to them about different things that come up from the study, like food, transportation, housing, you know, self-care, and just like access. She has worked to ensure that the knowledge community members hold about the change in their community actually translates into beneficial investment patterns. And then we come together and we analyze the results. It's a lot of different things that we do, but really it's about how we're linking the research and the data to also what we're seeing in the field and how we're expressing that to one another and how we also can look at trends or patterns or different ways we can collaborate throughout the different neighborhoods that are in h and There's a section in the survey called Ownership of Change that helps Robin and other resident researchers determine whether developments in Mattapan are centering residents' wants and needs. It's kind of like a web of asking the residents, are you seeing these different things going on in your community? So are you seeing developments? Are you seeing more when it comes to transportation? And so basically it's like, if you're seeing it, are you involved? It's a reflective question. And then also, are these changes for you? Do you think that they're for you? Being able to then have data that says like, 
you know, people are seeing this, but they're not actually seeing that this is for them. Then that brings up a conversation of who is involved in the developments, who is at the table and how are they not just marketing, but really involving the people that live in the communities. And Robin says this approach differs from a typical research study that academic or philanthropic institutions might normally take because it centers around equity, especially um, thinking about racial equity and equity in the sense of the dynamics of whether it's academic or community, everyone is benefiting from this work, not just a solo person that's doing the research. And, you know, this is the model that then is going in as an outsider into communities, which is fine. You know, I think that's traditionally what it's been for like a lot of different industries and academia. But this is different. Vedette agrees. And we recognize, you know, at its core equity to be about equally valuing people based on their identities and lived experiences. So we've got, you know, racial equity. We've got equity across abilities. We've got economic equity, which is called economic justice, environmental equity, environmental justice, right? Recognizing that all of these intersections are there. And for us in the research space, one of the things that's really important to us is to center in on who produces information, who has the power to advance their agenda through information. Lottie Aaron says empowering residents with the data can also be critical to this longer term systems change. Data are a form of power, of course, and they are very valuable in terms of ongoing accountability, accountability to the community, accountability to their elected representatives, accountability to funders, private interests, all the business community, because they're staying in the community. They live there. They will see the different trends and the different ways that their realities and the investments that they're benefiting from or not benefiting from are impacting their day-to-day conditions of life. An example of a larger systems-changing innovation from the project has been the development of a new investment tool called the Health Score. Health Score is an investment screening tool, first and foremost, that we created for the Healthy Neighborhoods Equity Fund in recognition that there are a lot of ways in which development can help or harm health and advance sustainability and community stability more broadly. But many of those things don't get measured or even considered in the development process and in the investment review process. Maggie says the team ended up building the scorecard based on the HNS researchers' recommendations. The scorecard accounts for different factors that drive decision-making around a set of investments that advance health, wealth, and opportunity in a place. Health Score gives higher scores to development proposals that show input from surrounding residents and create a range of health benefits. Part of that is also really doing qualitative assessment to say, what do we know about the context of this place? Because place matters tremendously. And there's no single data set, unfortunately, you can go to to say, well, what do people in this place aspire to? What are their priorities? How do we know what they want? So our scorecard includes both some of those qualitative assessments, reviews, conversations, as well as a lot of quantitative data that tells us about demographics, environmental conditions, economic conditions, things like housing cost burden, pollution levels, access to and quality of green space or food. And all of those different pieces of information get rolled up into health score. And that essentially tells us what we know about the place today, what we know about the proposed development in terms of what it intends to do and how that ties back to our goals and what we understand the community's goals to be. And from that is essentially a rating that says this is moderate impact, 
high impact, very high impact. To have a screening like this on the front end of development projects is very different from business as usual. And the use of this tool has influenced the behavior of investors. Developers are modifying their proposed projects to score high on the health score, and they're starting to be more take up. There has been incredible demand to learn about what we've done and how we've done it, because I think many people are struggling with the same issues and questions and challenges. So we have done a couple of things to try and share our learning with the field more broadly. One has been to make our own metrics and the research behind it more widely available to people who are trying to think about all the different dimensions of health, health impact, and equity. The other thing we've done is to launch a training program for other organizations, investors, folks who are interested in trying to be more intentional about impact measurement and decision-making into their work. Taking on this kind of work is, of course, challenging, but there are a few lessons the team would highlight. One is that trying to broaden the scope of investments takes time. This was a 10-year project, so the initiative had the space from the funder to listen and adapt, and they gave them the flexibility to change the evaluation and to implement the health score. Here's Lottie and Maggie. That time period was really an important characteristic of that grant. The funders and the designers, as it evolved, recognized that this is not something that happens in a 24-month or 36-month period. And so really, there was a lot of wisdom behind that longer time period in terms of allowing the community to really do the hard work that's involved in learning and seeding the kinds of relationships and capacities that are needed to do this work at a deep, authentic level. Sometimes you won't get everything done you thought you would do in the time you thought you would do it, but you may end up doing it better if you take that time. And sometimes that means going in a different direction, stopping for a different conversation, resetting the way you operate, and that's okay. It's part of the work. It doesn't mean that you're doing things wrong. It actually means you're doing things right. Two, it's important to recognize the structural and systemic barriers embedded in systems. Here's Vedette. Always acknowledging the systems level contributions to the lived disparity and embodied disparity and embodied harm that people are living through and differentiating that. So recognizing that disparity is systemically and socially produced and separating that from the people. Three, finding ways to truly listen to community through tools like the PAR can deeply inform community development projects. Here's Robin. This is probably one of the few studies, only studies I know that has done this kind of work where you're really empowering people to do the research. I think that this should be a model for, you know, how to do PAR work. We're trying to advocate for and promote the beautiful, healthy, productive parts of our community because we live here and we know that it's here. And we want to have more for the people who are here, not for people who may be living in luxury condos or who are just here to be in Boston, but really for the people that have really put their blood, sweat and tears into making the community the what it is. And ultimately, these types of development projects can work to reflect the interests and needs of the community that's there. Here's Vedette with a closing thought. There's a saying like, do nothing about me without me. But I think even deeper than that, people have been doing this without us for a long time. And it's our responsibility to take the opportunities and resources that we have and reinvest them in what they've been doing while they've been under-resourced, while they've been kept away from the table. 
It's not that we need to engage communities in our work. It's that we need to recognize that the work is community's work and that we've been disconnected from our partners in the work for too long. As always, we'll close with some key takeaways. Here are three things to remember. One, community development projects have typically been focused on financial returns rather than looking at how investments can serve broader goals for a community. The Healthy Neighborhoods Equity Fund in Boston is a compelling example of trying to see long-term health and well-being and systems change within communities. Two, in order to truly advance community interests, it's powerful to recognize and center the expertise of community members. They're often the ones who are best able to describe how existing systems are not serving them and how development can more equitably benefit their communities. And three, doing this kind of work to change systems takes time and tools. The long-term commitment of the fund and the creation of tools like HealthScore increase the likelihood of actually changing the way our systems support communities and drive more equitable outcomes for residents. So that's our show. Big thank you to everyone we spoke with to make this episode possible. Lottie Aaron, Maggie Superchurch, Vedette Gavin, and Robin Gibson. Another big thanks to our producers for this episode, Jacinth Jones and Lydia Lowe. Finally, thank you to the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation for their support of this episode. Our music is by Moby. For everyone on the Critical Value team and my two children who continue to be co-producers, Thanks for listening to the podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. Goodbye.